You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And so what you have is you have compliance and security regulations happening within the industry coming from one end, and then you have regulation coming from the government from the other end. And so you find folks in a bit of a scramble to solve for not just uh, payments information, but also for privacy regulations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben looks at the recent Russian takedown of alleged R-Evil masterminds. I look at warrantless requests for WhatsApp metadata. And later in the show, my conversation with Rustin Miles from Bluefin. We're discussing compliance regulation as it relates to the payment security space. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, uh, we got some good stories to share this week. But before we do, we have a little bit of follow-up from a listener uh, named Casey who wrote in and said... Regarding the Caveat Podcast 108, uh, two things. Uh, First, when considering whether to make constitutional amendments easier, we should always first consider how easy we would want it to be for our political opponents, those who see things oppositely than we do, to change the Constitution. Uh, Yeah, I I would agree with that, Ben. I I would say we're kind of in the midst of that, uh, we're in the heat of that right now with the filibuster debate, right? Yeah, you know, I'm cynical enough to believe that most people don't have really firm principles when it comes to procedural things, like how easy it should be to uh, pass a constitutional amendment or whether there should be a filibuster, that for most Mm -hmm. people it's situational. Um, I think there are people who have spent a lot of time thinking about both of these issues, the filibuster and constitutional amendments. And in the long run, you know, I think you can make a proper normative judgment as to whether it is too easy or too hard. You know, I think it certainly has to be a much higher bar when we're talking about constitutional amendments than simply passing a law, uh, you know, because mm. our Constitution is our, our sacred document. It should We should have to go through a bunch of hurdles uh, in, in order to change it. And, you know, I think the rationale of our founders is, you know, we need to get the states involved. It was the states that you know, predated our federal constitution. And so the state legislatures should have a say. And I I certainly respect that. Um, And yeah, you know, anytime you're evaluating making these changes, you should always think about what if it's the other guys? What if it's the the people you most vehemently disagree with who Mm -hmm. uh, make constitutional amendments? I still think even if you think about it like that, there, there is a case for 
arguing that the process should be not quite as cumbersome, given that we are a very closely divided country and getting three quarters of our state legislatures to agree to anything is just kind of exceedingly difficult. Mm. Um, But that is the process we have. Uh, It's not going to change anytime soon. So, um, but I certainly, I think that listeners uh, note of caution is, is well-founded. Okay. Well, Casey has another question. He says, how would rule 407 of the federal rules of evidence apply to post cyber attack remedial efforts? Ah, yes. Rule 407. I know it well. We all know that one. Yeah. Actually, no, I don't know it well. Ben, what is it? (laughs) So it is a uh, rule in the federal rules of evidence, uh, which are publicly available, by the way, online, if you're ever extremely bored and want to check those out. Uh, Those rules are basically what information can and cannot be uh, admitted in federal court. So they only apply to federal cases. Rule 407 is about evidence of somebody taking remedial measures uh, in the aftermath of an alleged wrong, so an alleged tort or something like that. Basically, uh, if you're being sued for negligence— and, you know, subsequent to that lawsuit, you take some type of remedial measure. Maybe you make your product a little safer. Maybe you streamline the distribution process. A court will not admit evidence of that to show that you were negligent in the first place, if that makes mm. sense. Because they mm-hmm. want to encourage people to take those remedial measures. So they don't want something like that to be admissible in court in order to prove that you were negligent in the first place. This question is about cyber incidents, and certainly Rule 407 uh, applies. Let's say um, you're being sued because you know you were negligent, data was breached, something happened, uh, and in response to the lawsuit itself, you take remedial measures, say, by instituting multi-factor authentication. The mm. fact that you took that action uh, after being sued can't be admitted in evidence to show that you were negligent in the first place. It can be admitted for other reasons. Um, you know, so if there's any dispute about whether you had ownership of the software, it could be, you know, the fact that you were the one who made changes to it, it can be admitted for uh, for those purposes. And it can be admitted, you know, to impeach somebody's credibility. So, you know, let's say you took remedial measures, but you had lied about whether you had taken those same measures in the past. You could introduce evidence to show that, you know, the, the witness here is a liar. I see. Uh, but yeah, I mean... Just like any other federal case, uh, we want to encourage people to take remedial measures uh, to correct past mistakes without worrying about whether it's going to hurt them in a uh, lawsuit. So the rule certainly applies. Most state courts follow a version of the federal rules of evidence. There are some differences here and there, um, but it it really is a template for most state cases as well. Hmm. Um, So... Yeah, I, I think that this is an excellent question, a great point, and um, that federal rule of evidence does apply. All right. Well, our thanks to our listener, Casey, for sending that in. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can send it to caveat at thecyberwire.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? So my story comes from our friends uh, at Motherboard by Vice, and it is entitled Russia says it has arrested members of the notorious R-Evil ransomware gang. Mm-hmm. We talked about R-Evil last year. Uh, they were the alleged perpetrators of the Colonial Pipeline attack, or, or rather, they're associated with the alleged perpetrators of uh, the Colonial Pipeline attack. That group is uh, called Dark Side. Uh, so this is seemingly a really encouraging step. I mean, we had taken diplomatic measures over the past year as a country to try to encourage Russia 
to hold cyber, cyber criminals to account. And seemingly, that's what they've done here. Their domestic law enforcement agency has made arrests of 14 members of this R evil group. Uh, before we get, you know, a little too rosy about what this means, there are mm-hmm. some plausible explanations other than, you know, Russia suddenly turned benevolent in the, uh, in the right. world of cyberspace. Uh, so, you know, we could choose to believe that they've really decided based on, you know, our, our diplomatic encouragement that they need to take ransomware attacks more seriously. Uh, and they're doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. It's, you know, good for their international relations posture. That's possible. The more cynical explanation is they're looking to placate the West uh, because they are currently engaged in activities, as we all know, around the Ukrainian border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so not only would they have incentive to show the West, like, we're, you know, we're not the lawless society that you're portraying us to be, but also, you know, yeah, we're doing this for you now. But if we invade Ukraine or violate Ukraine's borders and you institute, uh, you know, some sort of sanctions or uh, other diplomatic pressure on us, maybe we won't be so nice to you about these, you know, cyber criminals in the future. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this, this story has a little bit of international intrigue to it. Uh, we don't know the motivations behind the Russian government's decision here. I do think, you know, regardless of the motivations, it's good news that, um, you know, the alleged perpetrators of some of these very serious attacks are being brought to justice, have been arrested. Yeah. I saw um, a cybersecurity uh, ransomware expert, uh, Alan Liska. He's from Recorded Future. He mentioned on Twitter he was uh, sort of half-jokingly wondered if uh, if this makes Russia's FSB eligible for uh, the U- U.S. government's $10 million um, reward. <laughs> the prize grant, yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I'm not sure how, or, uh, how well that would sell politically, yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> this, you know, good old American group who, uh, you know, checked all the boxes and, and uh, helped us improve our own cybersecurity posture. Good for you, but we're going to give that $1 million to Russia, actually. Uh, Russian intelligence agencies. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, or is it just professional courtesy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alan Liska was actually quoted in this piece. Uh, and he postulates, and I think this is certainly uh, you know something that we should keep in mind, that maybe ransomware groups aren't safe in Russia once they've outused their usefulness. Uh, mm. That's the cynical view. I happen to think it's probably right. Uh, there are reasons for them to take law enforcement action post hoc, you know, after there have been a series of attacks that have inflicted the type of damage that agents and the Russian government perhaps uh, wanted to inflict on their foreign adversaries. Uh, and once that's done, as we mentioned, they might have their own reasons uh, to to hold those perpetrators accountable. But nevertheless, I mean, as as he says in this article, they caused a lot of damage to many different types of organizations around the world. Um, and having them face any consequences could serve as a disincentive for future cyber criminals. So whether or not you know this is actually Russia getting serious about tackling ransomware, um, or you know this is just a way to alleviate international pressure, the fact that they're being held to account is good news, and it's something that that we should celebrate. I just think you know you and I are are almost always cynical, so it's not a problem for us. But <laughs> if anybody was wearing rose-colored glasses and thinking, you know, this was a major breakthrough in 
our international fight against ransomware, I'd, um, you know, I think twice about that. Yeah, we're all going to get together, hold hands, and sing We Are the World. Yeah, I mean, you never know. We we certainly <laughs> had vi- visions of that in the 80s and 90s. That's right. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I tend to think this is not the beginning of a future path that leads to us and our Russian and Chinese adversaries singing We Are the World. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. If I'm wrong, you can hold me accountable. Well, I think we'll see if this is a one-off or if we continue to see more uh, arrests from Russia's FSB or, or, you know, or not. That'll be the proof in the pudding, I suppose. Right, and the circumstances around these arrests. So what's going on geopolitically with Russia at the time? And, you know, what other motivation might they have for holding these organizations accountable that might be below the surface? So that's the, mm-hmm. you know, they've outlived their usefulness. They're a sacrificial lamb. They're a mis- it's a misdirection. We always have to keep those people in mind, uh, the, those theories in mind. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly worth keeping an eye on. I, I'm not going to completely discount the uh, possibility that this is a good faith effort to hold cyber criminals accountable. And if it is, we should welcome it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we will be uh, following this closely for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, my story this week uh, comes from Forbes, uh, written by Thomas Brewster, who uh, we certainly feature here regularly. And the article is titled, WhatsApp Ordered to Help U.S. Agents Spy on Chinese Phones, No Explanation Required. Um, and this uh, centers around... Um, some documents that were recently unsealed, uh, and it has to do with uh, surveillance from DEA investigators who demanded that uh, Facebook track some users on WhatsApp, uh, and they're making use of uh, the Pen Register Act, which evidently goes back to 1986. Ben, uh, can you give us a little uh, Cliff's Notes on the Pen Register Act? Yeah. Uh, so, you know... Many of us were young or not yet born when uh, the Pen Register Act was, uh, you know, at its most relevant stage. But basically, there used to be this device you would attach to a phone that would record the numbers being dialed and the duration of the calls mm-hmm. back in the age of landline phones. Right. And the Pen Register Act of, of 1986 said that as long as it's part of a authorized criminal investigation, you do not need a warrant to install a pen register to uh, obtain that type of metadata. So it doesn't collect any content. It's not a recording device. It's just information about um, the people involved in the communication. So the phone Mm -hmm. numbers, the accounts, et cetera. And so when we transfer that to the modern age with uh, apps like this, uh, text messaging apps and and so on, uh, same sort of thing applies where they're just collecting who connected to whom, but not uh, the actual content of the message. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about WhatsApp, they can't collect the content of the message because it's end-to-end encrypted. So Mm. the only useful information they could potentially glean from WhatsApp or any other provider, really, um, that has an end-to-end encrypted messaging service is the metadata. Metadata might be extremely valuable when we're trying to, you know, I think this ends up being a case about the distribution of opioids. And if we can start to make connections as to who was communicating with whom, um, and then, you know, we use human intelligence means to connect 
devices to individuals, phone numbers to individuals, account numbers to individuals. That's just good, you know, intelligence work. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly permissible without a warrant as long as this isn't being done to harass people if it's part of a criminal uh, investigation. And it seems in this case, the the DEA was uh, trying to track down folks who were selling opioids and other drugs on the web, um, uh, dark web markets and, and things like that. Yeah, you know, so things that clearly, uh, you know, the U.S. Justice Department would have a, a, a significant interest in. You know, I, that's the purpose behind the pen register app in the first place is getting a warrant when you're in the middle of a criminal investigation, when you don't have sufficient information to have probable cause to arrest somebody would just be too cumbersome. And that's why we have this pen register act. Its purpose is to, you know, if you have an inkling that somebody is involved in criminal activity, um, if you uh, can assert in front of a magistrate judge that the information likely to be obtained is relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation um, being undertaken by your agency, then yeah, I mean, you. Uh, law enforcement will be able to collect that information. That's unsettling to a lot of people uh, because it means that the government has warrantless access to all of our metadata. Um, And that's largely true, although there are starting to be some exceptions. Mm -hmm. And the constitutional reason for that is we just don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that metadata. So when it was phone numbers, and this comes from a famous uh, 1979 Supreme Court case, Smith v. Maryland, the court held, you know, we know that the phone company is making a records, uh, making a record of all of the calls that we make for their own business purposes, so that they can send us a bill at the end of the month. Mm. And because we know they're making those records, we don't have any expectation uh, that those records won't be transmitted to law enforcement. It gets a little complicated when we're talking about end-to-end encrypted applications, just because, you know. I don't think people are quite aware that the metadata itself might be logged and retained. Um, You know, it's the communications themselves that are encrypted, that are inaccessible to to law enforcement. But I still think, you know, from a constitutional perspective, people do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that sort of routing information. You know, we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy on what's on the outside of an envelope. We only have a reasonable expectation of privacy Mm. as to what's on the inside of an envelope. Um, so I think from a constitutional perspective, it, it certainly makes sense, even though, you know, the tone of this article, and I think maybe for a lot of our listeners, is that's a little screwed up that you can obtain that information without getting a warrant. So help me understand here. Do you still need to go in front of a judge to to activate a pen register? Yeah, you still have to go in front of a uh, magistrate judge, but the you know standard is significantly lower than it is for any other type of surveillance for a warrant. That would involve, right for a warrant which you would I need see. if you were uh, if you wanted to peruse the content of one's communications I see I guess I'm wondering if the notion here is that you're that part of w- the reason for having something like this is expediency uh, if I still have to stand in front of a judge uh, is that any faster than standing in front of a judge for a warrant I don't necessarily I mean I think you can establish expediency just through the process. And I think our Justice Department has a good process where they can get these applications uh, in front of magistrate judges pretty quickly. I think the mm. bigger impediment to them is getting past the standard. So having probable cause that somebody is committing or has committed a crime, 
when you're just at the early stages of an investigation is um, too high of a hurdle to climb for uh, people who are involved in law enforcement. I if you're, see. you know, studying a drug smuggling operation, you might be at the very beginning stages, just trying to make connections of who the players are, uh, you know, who's selling, who's dealing, what the roots are. You can't obtain that information unless you do some type of surveillance. And to do that survey, you know, to do that preliminary surveillance, you're not going to have enough information to have a warrant. You're not going to have enough information to show that somebody has committed or is about to commit a crime. Um, so in that sense, you know, the fact that it's a lessened standard really does make it easier for law enforcement to do its job at the beginning of these investigations. I see. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, so uh, please do uh, check that out. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Rustin Miles. He is from a company called Bluefin. And uh, our conversation was about uh, compliance regulation uh, in the payment security space. Here's my conversation with Rustin Miles. In the payments world, as you know, going back uh, oh, about 10 or 15 years, because the data, payment card data, is very easily monetized on the dark web by hackers, that particular industry had uh, stood up early on to create its own uh, self-regulation, if you will, compliance and security, namely the uh, what came to be known eventually as the PCI Security Standards Council. And so we're doing that for, for quite some time and, um, and lots of technologies, lots of uh, disruptive uh, entrants like, like my company and others coming into that space in order to bring security. What happened then is, is that the, the hackers really started looking at other ways to monetize data for personal health information and also personal identifiable information. And so they started looking at um, not just so these companies weren't just having to protect the payment card data, they needed to extend that. And then you had regulations over across the pond, uh, GDPR, PSD2, and others in Europe that were uh, dropping very hefty fines, millions and millions and millions of dollars of fines onto companies after a breach would happen if they had not uh, followed you know, reasonable security um, standards. 
And then you have a CCPA, California uh, Consumer Privacy Act, and then other states joining in, sort of doing the th- same thing here stateside in the United States. And so what you have is you have uh, two things. You've got compliance and security regulations happening within the industry coming from one end, and then you have uh, you have regulation coming from the government and passing out fines when you get it wrong from the other end. And so you find folks in a bit of a scramble to solve for not just uh, payments information, but also for privacy regulations. You know, it's my perception, and, and please correct me if I'm mistaken here, that um, the U.S. has kind of lagged behind, say, Europe when it comes to uh, the security of some of these payment options. You know, the, the, they had, uh, you know, chip and pin before we did. It seems like we've lagged with some of the, I guess, the technology solutions. Is is that an accurate assessment from your point of view? So uh, l- let me answer that by with two parts. Number one, the actual chip uh, and pin over there in Europe did not come as a as a as an innovation or uh, there for payment security. It actually was an innovation that came out early on because of the lack of really good telecommunications and networking. Hmm. So what happens is, is you might be out in the middle of nowhere with very poor telecommunications, and you needed to authenticate that card while it was going into the machine without being able to go off and do a real time lookup at a bank. So what happens is, is the chip would have the pin in it on the card, and it would say, hey, put your pin in, and it was self-authenticate against the card there. So that technology was not put in place for security so much as it was the fact they didn't have real-time telecom. Hmm. Now, eventually, as we know, as time moved on, it has other benefits because the Magstripe read uh, that we depended on um, both there and and here uh, really started to be something that was easily reproducible. So there was a built-in benefit that came in down the line with that. In the United States, um, we uh, we did not put in uh, chip and pin, and we took a long time to get to chip uh, as well. Um, you know, we we could have had the same security by just doing magstripe read and pin. There really wasn't anything too uh, too great. Obviously, the, the the chip has some advantages, but really, where the biggest benefit is coming up when you uh, when you talk about these kinds of technologies is the fact that there's two factors. There's the card you have in your hand and the pin you know in your mind. So a lot of the benefit happening over there is the fact that there are two factors of authentication. Over here stateside, even now that we have chips, uh, we still don't have that uh, second factor of authentication being the pin that's required. Mm. So that means lost or stolen chip cards. Um, Someone can just pick up off the ground and go use it as if they would have used a swipe. So it really doesn't fix every every everything completely anything even a max stripe read with a pin would be would be more secure in just the fact that you know in basic security fundamentals there are two factors of authentication going on there but to answer your question more broadly we have taken more time we're a very much larger market uh we actually have a much more penetration of cards you look into some areas like germany where like there's only maybe two or let's just say under 10 percent penetration from visa and mastercard and some of these other brands mm. So we're heavily dependent on on these card brands over here, and uh, we're very wide and spread out. Larger company, country, excuse me. And so there there has been some uh, some slow to adoption. And I'd say that one of the other things that folks don't think about is is that um, it takes a lot of, ener- of energy and effort for all of these software vendors, hardware providers, and and sort of the long chains of uh, value in tech- technology that's been growing very quickly over the last. 20 years to go in and say, hey, everyone, in order to accept cards, we demand or we mandate that you do this. In other smaller markets, 
and also where culturally mandates are more are traditionally more accepted of any of any kind, even just uh, just within the culture of the folks you see in those markets um, that are smaller and are used to those kinds of things where the governments have just come in and, and mandated it. It would have been very difficult and probably slowed down the payments revolution here had we focused too much on a mandate. Obviously, uh, there's a balance there and probably ought to be looking a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, you mentioned culture. It, it still uh, leaves me raising my eyebrows, you know, when, when I go out to uh, eat at a restaurant and when we wrap up the meal and I hand my my credit card to a stranger who then walks away with it and takes it to another room, you know, <laughs> I still, I still, you know, sort of scratch my head and think, okay, we're still doing it this way. And, you know, on the one hand, I suppose it's good that, you know, the vast majority of time, nothing bad happens there, but uh, the security side of me says, perhaps there's a better way to handle this. Yeah, it's true. And uh, it is kind of it, certainly it, it, when you when you step back from it, it can look a little silly. One of the things here in, in stateside in the United States is that we have a zero liability policy for the cardholders, which means even if something should happen, they can charge it back. Uh, and uh, the issuing bank or, or the let's just say the issuing bank or the, the merchants acquiring bank, they'll fight over who gets the liability. Mm. Um, over in over in Europe uh, anymore, they are starting to push in certain cases this liability onto the consumer, where you have no chargeback rights. So I think as if if we start doing that here in the states, we'll see a strong consumer demand. Let's just say, uh, because we've taken away the zero liability rights for the, for the consumers. Uh, but I have not heard much about anything heading in that direction for some time. What about you know these next generation payment systems? I'm, I'm thinking of you know Apple Pay and Google Pay and you know these systems that are using. Um, I, I suppose is it enhanced tokenization that would be a, an accurate way to describe what's going on there? Where do they fit into the overall ecosystem? Yeah, great question, and it's really I think what uh, what is coming. We're, we're going to see a lot of more and more news over the next year, even incentives coming from the card brands in order to adopt what's called issuer tokens or network tokenization. And so these wallets, the Google Pay Wallet, Android Pay Wallet, and other wallets like from the EMV codes SCR, which we see MasterCard, Visa, and others rolling out, these two use issuer tokens. And really what's happened here is, is that we've seen, um, you know, so my company, Bluefin, uh, we were the first to provide point-to-point encryption, PCI validated or certified encryption, end-to-end encryption, in the space. And, um, and what that really represented is, is a lot of merchants saying, hey, look, we don't want to be responsible for a breach. We don't want to be vulnerable or even have a compromise. Let's encrypt this stuff end-to-end. And so where you have a lot of enterprises doing that, and certainly um, it's been really great for our company, you have a lot of folks at the smaller end of the scale, these small businesses who don't have any appreciation for security, um, and they're not going to pay extra for encryption. Their biggest risk might be going out of business, you know, rather than maybe having a breach, at least as they perceive it. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, is there's large parts of the market that simply aren't minding security, and so the brands have taken up pushing uh, network tokenization, which basically replaces the card in the wallet with sort of a virtual number, right, or a token that then gets used, you know, for for that or a few transactions or as many transactions as, as they deem fit before they sort of change the underlying connection in the token. Um, so that definitely you're going to see a lot. We're going to see incentives from the card brands, financial incentives and other in order to push that because I think – Spent a lot of time over the last decade trying to push security down into the 
small and medium and micro merchants. Uh, and you can only get so far before someone just expects it to be secure by nature. And so they're, they're really, uh, this is maybe say 2.0 of what a card number should be, uh, are these new issuer tokens. You mentioned that, you know, PCI compliance was uh, sort of self-imposed by the industry itself. Does that seem to be the path that we're on, that in terms of the payment industry's relationship with regulators, that you know, there's more collaboration than an adversarial relationship? Or what do you expect to see as we go forward? So the PCI Security Standards Council, which I'm also on the board of advisors, and as it turns out, um, on, as a, on the board of advisors, I actually represent a group called EPSM, European Payments and Service Providers for Merchants in Europe. So strangely enough, uh, I, uh, I, I'm actually a big, a big uh, working with the board of advisors. But the point I wanted to make there is, is that the SSC Security Standards Council is a global organization spanning Europe, uh, Asia, Latin America, Caribbean, South, you know, that basically uh, the, entire, the entire globe. And it, the executive committee members of that are the card brands, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, you know, Discover, JCB and uh, I think um, China Union Pay is involved now as well. Now as well, so you they are they are, they are the executive members of that council. But what the idea there is is to have um, participating organizations like Bluefin and, and, and thousands of others that are participating in the creation of those standards. But of course, um, you know the the brands are are involved as well, card brands, in order to help um, you know push and govern and make sure that we as an industry are representing, um, you know, every different industry and in, in every different country and every different card type that participates. So I think it's been a really good model. I mean, I've been very closely involved with it. It does go towards security. And we're seeing a lot of the regulational things not focus on security, but rather focus on privacy. And there's there are some distinctions there. And really largely from my perspective, it means the regulations are not prescriptive, like here's here's how you have to do it. They say, oh, if you don't get it right, then here are the fines. Mm. So the regulations seem to be more focused on when things go bad. Here's the stick. Uh, and we see, I think, uh, from the Security Council, hey, here's here, here are the standards, uh, you know, not too prescriptive, but have to be somewhat prescriptive. And here, here are the ways that we would recognize a state of the art, and that's constantly changing. And so they have sort of the standard, the, uh, the, the, the government regulators have sort of the stick, and then you have the brands, card brands may be providing incentives, providing the carrots, saying, hey, by the way, if you do these things, not only will it help with privacy and security, but it's going to lower your costs, maybe the fees that you pay or the fines that you pay or different things like this. So I think right now it is working. Our challenge is to figure out how to uh, try to grow this model and these technologies outside of payments. We are in healthcare. Just give you a quick example there. Hmm. What will I've been in front of, you know, a few in my time, but it's interesting to hear, you know, the, 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 the CISO say, gosh, you guys fixed 100% of 10% of my problem <laughs> ah. because the other 90% of my problem is PII and PHI and all this other data. That's very scary. If it gets out into the wild, and it's not like this credit card that can be, you know, renumbered. You can't really like renumber someone's biometric or their healthcare data. You know, there's very sensitive stuff there. So the, the goal here, and that's what we've been charged with these last two years, is extending that outside of payments.
what do you think? You know, uh, I was kind of sad as, you know, an American exceptionalist thinking we're the greatest country on earth that it took <laughs> us a long time to catch up with our uh, European rivals when it came to <laughs> payment security. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just interesting how that's happened and, and how it's evolved. And I think I'm what strikes me is we're still sort of behind in mm-hmm. making sure that these payments are secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's dangerous. I mean, a lot of what happens in terms of rectifying these problems, happens after there has already been a security incident, meaning somebody's already used our credit card somewhere and we can cancel that payment and work with our financial institution. But yeah, I mean, it's a a little concerning that we haven't caught up with the rest of the world in terms of the most robust security measures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Still scratch my head that, uh, you know, go out to a restaurant give a stranger your credit card, they take it to another room <laughs> to process right. it. You know, our, our European friends seem to have this much better figured out. They bring a little, uh, you know, a little portable device out to the table and it all gets done right there. It seems to me in this, these days, that's a much more secure way to handle it. Sure. And having two factors of authentication. So chip and pin, great. You know, the pin is the, the, the chip is the fancy computer thing. The uh, pin is the content of your own mind. Meld right. those two together. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful <laughs> Reese's. Just having the chip is kind of just the peanut butter. Um, uh-huh. You need that chocolate to make it extra secure, extra delicious. Uh, And, you know, without having that second factor, we are making ourselves more vulnerable. Because anybody could just steal a chip card and put it into a machine, charge it, get whatever you're trying to purchase. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's certainly striking. Uh, now I want a snack. All right. <laughs> well, our thanks to uh, Rustin Miles from Bluefin for joining us. Uh, we do appreciate him taking the time to share his expertise. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. Six Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>